If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of James. If you're a guest with us, you should be able to find the book of James uh, in a Bible underneath the seat in front of you. Uh, If you reach under there and if you don't have a copy of God's Word that you can call your own, we'd love for you to take one of those home with you today. Please consider that a gift from our church to you. Your presence is your gift to us today. And you should find the book of James somewhere around page 1011 uh, in the Bible underneath the seat in front of you. We're going to begin reading in James chapter 4 verse 10 in just a few moments, even though we're going to focus our attention on James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12, uh, as we piece this section together and kind of close out what James has been teaching us for the past few weeks. James writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now. You rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord As an example, behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, whom we know as Father through our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that you would help us in this time as we study your word. We pray that you would help us to focus our attention on your word. I pray, Father, in particular, that you would help me as I preach your word. Father, I pray for everyone who is before me, for the believers, that they might be built up because of your word, for those who are not yet believers, that you might use your word today to do the good work of redeeming grace and cause them to be born again, that you would open their ears to hear and their eyes to see the beauty of the gospel as it has been decisively revealed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we ask that you would write these eternal life truths on our hearts, that we might walk in the knowledge of the grace of Christ, or that we might repent and trust in the grace of Christ. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. James has been writing and preaching to his people, and like a good preacher, at the end of his book, he's drawing all of his arguments to a conclusion. But one of the things that we might think of James, like any preacher that we often hear, is that he's a little haphazard at the end of his sermon and not structuring it very carefully, trying to make sure that he gets everything in. Often, I think that's how we've approached this text in particular, specifically as we look at verse 12. Let's read it again very quickly before I show you the structure and move into the sermon proper. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, so let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. As I prepared for this text, thinking about the structure that I've been preaching to you, I've been puzzled by verse 12 and trying to think, how is James bringing everything together specifically on oaths? But I want to show you something so that it might help draw the sermon together for us. The structure often helps us see the meaning. I want you to look with me just very quickly at verses 7 and 8. And notice that there is a theme of patience in those verses, referring to the coming of the Lord. And then notice in verse 9, James says, do not grumble, a sin of speech. Patience and the sin of speech, the coming of the Lord and the coming judge. Notice that he does the exact same thing in verses 10 and 11 and verse 12. There's another theme of patience and the coming end. And then in verse 12, a sin of speech as he refers to the coming judgment. Once again, as James is bringing all of his argument to conclusion, speaking to us about humility in particular, James is trying to highlight that one of the sins that we will see prominent in our lives as we misrepresent Christ and actually sin against the Lord and one another are sins of speech that actually reveal something about us. So patience, sin of speech, patience, sin of speech, all of that James is trying to teach us on this theme of waiting and humility, waiting for a Lord who is coming, yet who has not come. And James is teaching us, as we think about this here, how all of that requires humility, waiting for a Lord who is coming, yet seems to not have come, requiring humility. And notice how that, first of all, anticipates the Lord's coming. Now we'll look at verses 7 and 8. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Over the last few weeks, we've seen how everything flowing out of verse 10 of chapter 4 brings about this theme of humility, this exhortation, humble yourselves. Humble ourselves in relation to the law. Humble ourselves in relation to the future that we cannot control. Humble ourselves in relation to our riches. And now humble ourselves in relation to our suffering and our oaths 
Everything is an implication of humility for James. And James has taught us that God gives grace to the humble, the very humble that he calls to, verse 7, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Four times. Be patient, verse 7. Be patient again, verse 7. You also be patient, verse 8. As an example of suffering impatience, verse 10. Over and over again, James is calling the humble to be patient as he introduces this new theme teaching us that all of this exhortation here about suffering and speech, about patience and the coming of the Lord is preparing the people for the future and it's all stemming out of the abuses and the pain that they've been experiencing at the hands of the wicked wealthy. Enduring ill treatment with faith and integrity, with patience, James says, requires spirit-empowered strength as believers wait for the imminent return of Christ who will settle all accounts with complete justice. A theme that we saw last week is dominating the passage, specifically these verses. Notice it again. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Coming upon you. The future miseries he's speaking about are not far off, they're near. Verse 4. The last days. The final days are here now. We're not waiting for them, we're living in them. Verse 7, the coming of the Lord. Jesus is coming back. Verse 8, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Jesus is coming soon, perhaps sooner than we might think. Verse 9, he is standing at the door, so we must be ready right now. Brothers and sisters, James, very structured, just forces us to ask the question, are you prepared for the return of the Lord right now? James's exhortation to patient humility in relation to suffering and oaths is anchored in Jesus' imminent return. These Christians don't know the future, and they can't control it. They're suffering, and they can't stop it. But James wants all of these believers and us to know that what is before them to encourage them and rebuke them is the coming of Christ. He is coming back. And that is one of the primary truths that he's been trying to pass along for the last two weeks. Passing it along and asking us to ask ourselves, how will you suffer differently in light of the imminent return of Christ? When you can't control your future, when you can't even control your life, when the shelf life of your wealth is brief and the suffering that you're experiencing seems to drone on and on and on, how will you suffer differently in light of the coming of Christ? Jesus came, James teaches us. But James reminds us that he is coming again. And that is to change how we are to live in the present. In light of all of the abuse that these people are experiencing, the recipients of James' letter might be tempted to despair or to seek vengeance for themselves or to be, as James is exhorting them, impatient. Impatient with God. Surely his providences are wrong. God didn't orchestrate this right. Have you ever asked yourself that? As if God got it all wrong when he was planning your life. Surely they are attempted to be impatient with one another. No one understands what I'm going through. I am the only one who has suffered like this and suffering now. Have you ever suffered like that? isolating yourself from the other people around you. Nobody understands what it's like to be you. Impatient because God seems delayed. He says he's coming back. 
but he is not yet here. James is telling us that he is near, but here we are nearly 2,000 years later, and he's not yet back. For those of you who love the Chronicles of Narnia, one of the things that you'll see in the Chronicles of Narnia is that there is this time differential between when the children are not in Narnia and when they are in Narnia. And they live all of this time in Narnia, and they come back to their real lives, and they are astonished that so little has changed. So much has changed in their lives in Narnia, so little has changed in the regular world, and they're constantly confused by this. There's something of an image like that for James here. He is here. He is coming. He is standing at the door. But the Lord with him one day is not like a day for us. There is a time differential that feels frustrating to us. He's delayed, but James is telling us that he is not delayed. None of these responses for James is a Christian response. So he exhorts us, verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Holding up through God-sent afflictions and the difficulties of life is actually the pathway to growth and maturity. It is the progressive road to becoming complete and perfect, lacking in nothing for James. So James encourages us to the life of endurance by holding before us this bright prospect. But it's not quite the prospect that we would think. It's the prospect of the last day and the Lord's return and the final judgment. And in so doing, he tells us that we must exercise a spirit-empowered restraint and patience, fueled by a coming assurance that the Lord Jesus will set all things right because he will actually return. And on that day, nobody, none of us, and no one you have ever met will ever be able to accuse God of injustice or delay. Every sin will be exposed and judged. The lawgiver and the judge will set everything before him. Although Christians draw comfort in knowing the Lord and that the Lord will punish their oppressors, We see here that what James wants us to see is that the return of the Lord is actually to inspire the believer to live in the present as they move into the future. And just as, verse 7, a farmer must be patiently waiting for the rains that will enable his crops to grow and produce fruit, so Christians must patiently wait for the Lord's return because he will settle all accounts. Verse 7, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. In the Palestinian climate, the early and the late rains were a unique feature. The early rains come sometime in October, preparing the soil for the seed, helping them that they're going to receive once planted to begin germinate and to grow. And the late rains come in March and April, and they swelled the grain, and they guaranteed a good crop. The illustration fits well for James and all of his readers so that we might see the point of what he's trying to say, and it's the characteristic way that James has been writing to us. Faith meets life's tests through patience, and it grows into full maturity as it settles down through it. Or as Alec Mater said, we do not drift into holiness, we grow into holiness. And like every harvest, it is a process. Nothing can hurry the early and late rains, and nothing can speed up the process of this life. But James assures us, all will be well because he is coming. While patience is sometimes equated with passivity, James, through these repeated exhortations, helps us see that there's an active patience that we are supposed to have as believers. Verse 8, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, 
for the coming of the Lord is at hand. A threat to patience is our own impatience. It's not external, it's internal. We don't like the way things are working out, so we're frustrated with the way that God has orchestrated our life, so we're impatient with the process of God's conformity of us to his character. So James exhorts us to this self-restraint, to be patient, to not be hasty, to not retaliate when wronged, to not seek to speed up the coming of Christ, but to wait for the coming of the Lord. James calls all of us to establish our hearts, verse 8, before the Lord, referring to that internal resignation where we no longer strike out in retaliation. Instead, he calls us to set our hearts due north on the Lord's return. Friends, I wonder, how many times throughout your day or throughout your week do you look forward and think of the Lord's return and the light of the frustrations that you're experiencing and allow that to be a comfort to you as you live? That is exactly what James is teaching the believers to do. In the midst of the frustration, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the alienation that they are experiencing because of believers, of being believers from their unbelieving neighbors, in the midst of all of the turmoil that they're experiencing in the dispersion as these churches have now been planted outside of Jerusalem, James is encouraging them to look forward in hope and allow that to settle them in the present. So many of us live so, such unsettled lives. James says it's because we're not looking forward far enough. We can be so internally frustrated because we're not looking to the Lord's coming back when the all-powerful judge will make all things right. Waiting for a Lord who is coming, yet seems not to come, requires humility. As we anticipate the Lord's coming, and as we notice second, expect the Lord's judgment. Verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As we wait for the Lord who is coming, yet seems not to come, James knows that it's easy for tempers to flare and for actually the fellowship to fall apart. So he says, do not grumble against one another, brothers. But as James taught in chapter 3, verse 18, the harvest of righteousness can only grow in the soil of peaceful fellowship. And one of the most disruptive things to peaceful fellowship is acidic, divisive speech like grumbling. One of the little sins that everyone does but is very serious from God's point of view for James, which forces us to think of all of the ways that we grumble and complain. We become so negative and mildly sour and skeptical about everything that is happening. But as you know, in the Bible, the people of Israel were killed for grumbling. It is a death sentence to grumble. Because God is truly good, and because he is truly good, we have to restrain our speech to not grumble. Friends, when we lose sight of what is before us, we become so absorbed, James tells us, in our own needy desires that we grumble. And grumbling matters before God. So James says, do not forget that everything that we do and say actually matters. Every careless word and every unthinking comment God is so committed to our holiness and our purity that he calls us to throw away all of the comments and the casual bad attitudes and the whatever's in our lives so that we no longer degrade and destroy the fellowship that is around us. Because human life, every choice, every thought, every word, every deed, every attitude really matters to him. 
And only as we awaken to that and awaken to the fact that we really need help are we able to say, God, I need your strength and your forgiveness. Give me the grace to care about and to say things that really matter. Do not grumble against one another. Brothers and sisters, are you grumbling against the Lord and are you grumbling against one another? And probably a better barometer of that is to ask the people who know you best or you think know you best and to share with them the truthfulness of your situation and ask them to speak to you without any fear of retaliatory response and ask them if they think that you're a person who grumbles. James knows, brothers and sisters, the enemy will always attack the fellowship And one of the ways that he will do that is by going after relationships, and he will go after them by grumbling and complaining and whining. Just because you don't like all of the decisions that the elders have made does not give you the right to grumble about what we have decided. And just because you don't find yourself close to other members of the church and don't think that they're doing it the right way doesn't give you the license to grumble about them. And just because you find some people off-putting and hard to be around doesn't mean that you have any freedom to grumble and complain. It is so easy to grumble, particularly when we think things are hard in our life. And it is so easy to grumble, particularly when we fail to remember the future. A tongue that destroys peace, James says, blights the harvest, a harvest that is to be reaped among God's people in the church, but the misused tongue will, bring, will be brought under condemnation. Verse nine, so that you may not be judged. The call for patience needs only be made in situations when there is a temptation to be impatient. And James knows that the temptation to be impatient comes under the stress of living for God in the context of community while suffering hardships in the world. We're impatient in those moments. We're frustrated with what God is doing. And as believers experience these hardships in the world, James expects that they will be tempted to grumble against one another and to take it out on each other. Brothers and sisters fellow members of this church in particular, James knows our hearts. The very people that we lash out against are the people around us. And the very people that we are most patient with are ourselves. It's so easy to be patient with ourselves and to take it out on everyone else around us. They don't understand. They don't appreciate. They don't know how hard it is for me to be me. But James tells us, The judge is standing at the door, and that requires restraint. Verse 9. When the judge at last steps across that threshold, he will bring every aspect of our lives under review. What will he find, believer? A life of thankfulness? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Or a life filled with complaint and grumbling and arrogant boasting about the future? A life that's filled with pain, but distrust. James reminds us that the coming of the Lord is at hand. And he tells us that our lives, when they're brought under review, will be shown that many times were brought, um, brought division in the context of the fellowship of believers. And he reminds these believers that the coming of the Lord should be something that restrains us so as we prepare for that day. We all stumble in many ways, James tells us, but grumbling against one another must be resisted in this life as we bump against one another in preparation for the next. And friends, isn't that exactly what happens? The larger the church grows, the easier it is to bump against one another and annoy one another and grumble against one another. James is asking us, would we want to hear on that day 
well done, good and faithful servant? Or why have you stirred up division among the brothers? The judge is standing at the door, waiting for a Lord who is coming, yet seems not to come, requires humility as we anticipate the Lord's coming, expect the Lord's judgment, and as we notice third, consider the Lord's servants. Verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The farmer provides a memorable image of patience. He has to plant and wait. He has to reap and sow. But a more direct parallel for endurance for these believers amidst all of the unjust suffering is found in the lives of the Old Testament prophets, prophets that James assumes that they are familiar with as he recounts their mistreatment and suffering to them in the sermon. Jeremiah was hunted down by men in his own hometown specifically because they wanted him to stop speaking in the name of the Lord. Ezekiel suffered painful bereavement as the setting in which he delivered the message that he preached. If Daniel had not suffered and been kicked out of his own homeland, we had never heard, it, heard from him or benefited from his ministry. Hosea's marriage and this breakdown was itself the Lord's word to and through him. Their privilege as a prophet and their trial as a prophet went hand in hand. And that is true for the believer. Our privilege as believers and the trials that we experience as believers go hand in hand in preparation for the next life. And their experience of suffering required patience. And our experience of suffering requires patience. We have to learn by the grace of God how to bear up under the stress of God's providence as we walk through the world without taking it out on one another or blaming God. And isn't that what we do all of the time? Blaming one another, blaming family, blaming friends, blaming colleagues, blaming coworkers, blaming politics, blaming life situations and our neighbors and blaming God because ultimately he got it all wrong when he was planning our life. But the privileges of the believer's life and the trials of the believer's life go hand in hand in preparing them for the next. By describing these prophets as those who spoke in the name of the Lord, James implies that the prophet's loyalty to God's word was the impetus for so much of the pain that they experienced in their life. And in this way, James is calling us to be loyal to the teaching of God's word and obedient to it in our lives. Regardless of what caused the prophet's suffering, verse 11, he says, we considered those blessed who remained steadfast. They suffered, but they were blessed. In other words, James is telling us what so many of us who have lived longer in life know, that there comes a point when we're able to look back and see the blessing in the pain. James is telling us that the same is true for these prophets and our experience in this life that we can look back and see the blessing that they might not have seen in that moment as we press through the trial and we praise God together. But the question for all of us is, is there a blessing in having exercised the steadfastness that James is calling us to? James thinks so, so he focuses on one Old Testament figure in particular who provides an example of faith amid suffering, Job. Look at verse 11. 
You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, a reader of the book of Job might rightly ask, did Job really remain steadfast? I mean, when I'm reading from chapter 3 to somewhere around chapter 39, it seems that he's complaining a lot. Yet even while fully expressing his lament to God, Job does not take his, his wife's advice to curse God and die. And in the end, even though Job was humbled and faced correction, he was commended by the Lord both at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book. One way James's readers are encouraged by the story of Job is to see the purpose of the Lord in Job's life, a purpose that James highlights for us with a unique word here in verse 11. And you have seen the purpose or the telos of the Lord. Now I want you to flip back with me all the way to the beginning of the book to chapter 1, verse 4. I'm actually going to begin reading in chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect or its perfection, the purpose, that you may be perfected or have its full effect, its uh, purpose, and be complete, lacking in nothing. Back to James chapter 5, verse 11. The outcome, the goal, the purpose of what God is doing is seen from the beginning to the end of the book of James and the beginning to the end of Job's life. By the end of the book of Job, the patriarch admits that he has learned of the sovereignty of God and of the goodness of the Lord. He has experienced restoration for which James' readers anticipate God's end-time restoration, including his people. Job was able to learn that God restores And James is calling us in this moment that God is going to come back and he's going to restore and make things right. And in this way, the story of Job is an example of faithful endurance, but even more of divine purpose. The blessedness which came to him eventually was not a fairy tale ending in which all lived happily ever after, but it was the objective of God from the start, above it all, with this enrichment of knowledge to know God more fully. And this is where Job puts his finger and James does also. Neither of them would have discounted or despised all of the earthly prosperity that Job experienced in this life. That was a part of God's compassion and mercy. But Job's own words were this in chapter 42, verse 5. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. His new knowledge of the Lord was as vivid as his replacement as hearsay from somebody else. And James brings this out, not the blessing, of the, Lord, that the blessing that the Lord bestows, but the knowledge of the Lord himself, verse 11, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The Lord subjects his servants to those trials which call for endurance because it is along those lines that he achieves his purposes for their lives. And in the midst of that, he pours out his compassion and his mercy, even in great suffering even in great suffering when we have no explanation. And in this way, James is telling us, just like the story for Job was not ended at chapter two, the story of your life does not end with your suffering. The Lord will have the last word and he will pour out his compassion and his mercy. You are not your worst day. You are not your greatest hardship In Christ, we will see as we look forward that he will pour out his compassion and his mercy. And James reminds us 
what we need to know about the Lord, that the Lord is compassionate and merciful in our suffering, despite our suffering. And when James com- and Jesus comes, then indeed, James teaches us, we will know the compassion and mercy of the Lord all the way. And we will see, perhaps for the first time, that behind all that God has ever done for us lies a heart of compassion and mercy. Behind the choice of us in eternity past, behind the gift of his son for us and for our salvation, behind all of the temporal and eternal blessings of this great salvation that he has given to us, behind his daily and his nightly care for us, the fact that he preserves us in the most vulnerable moments of our lives, behind all of his provision for our body, mind, and soul, behind his presence day by day throughout this life, behind the hope of glory that he has set before us, that this life is not all that there is for the believer. The wonder of that day and Christ's coming is then the full content of the heart of love that will come home for the believer's experience, and then they will know the great and tender heart of God. We will see his compassion and his mercy poured out for all of his chosen children, for all who remain steadfast under trial. We will see that God has been compassionate and merciful when we did not think that he was being compassionate and merciful. But there's another side to the expected expected coming for James, that the judge is at the door. He is standing at the door, and there is an inescapable judgment that will issue forth into condemnation for all who stand outside of Christ. Look again in verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast... You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. James is aware that there is compassion and mercy for some, and there is condemnation for others. Brothers and sisters, which will it be for us? Believer in the room, What is before you, despite what you are experiencing, is unimaginable compassion and mercy poured out by God our Savior. An unbeliever in the room. What is before you, not only from verse 12, but verse 10 and verse 9 and verse 8 and verse 7 and going all the way back into chapter 4, verse 10, is that God is going to bring forth his judgment. He's going to send forth his son. And on that day, when the great lawgiver comes and all stand before his judgment seat, when we stand before the judge and everything is laid bare, it will be plain on that day whose we were and what we have done and how it shall issue forth into judgment. Brothers and sisters, on that day, it will be clear whether we have believed and believed rightly and shown in our lives, not just by mere profession of words, that we believe that profession of faith, but we have lived that profession of faith, or whether we were false professors who professed faith and lived false lives and showed that we did not really believe what we said we believed. James is putting the coming of the Lord before us to encourage us, and he's also putting the coming of the Lord before us as a way to remind us that judgment is coming, judgment for all who stand outside of Christ. And friend, if you are here and you stand outside of Christ today, this church today and every day proclaims to you that there can be compassion and mercy known uh, to you through Jesus Christ if you turn away from your sins and trust in him. Waiting for a Lord who is coming yet seems not to come requires humility as we anticipate the Lord's coming, expect the Lord's judgment, 
consider the Lord's servants, and as we forth focus on the Lord's ends. Look with me again in verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. The phrase, but above all, does not introduce the most important element of the letter for James. But as we might expect, once again, James is stylizing what he's doing here to transition in this final section of his correspondence. And we can imagine James almost saying it something like this. Now to wrap things up on this section in humility. But it's difficult often for us to see how the swearing of oaths relates to everything that James has said before. We see the parallel in Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. There's certainly the parallel to this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more from this is evil. But I don't think it's simply an echo to Jesus' teaching. When suffering, we can be tempted to protect ourselves once again through deceptive speech. And James knows that. We grumble, and he calls us to not grumble, And here he knows that we lie, so he calls us to truthfulness when the pressures of life would lead us to despair and compromise and to lack integrity. Because to say yes and mean it and to say no and equally mean it is a matter of character more than it is simply a form of words, and that is the very theme of the heart of the letter for James, that we would be people without internal division. We would not say yes thinking no, that we would not say no thinking yes, that we would not be a divided people tossed to and fro, but that we would be a whole people. We would be the same in public as we are in private, that our speech would issue forth in behavior, that our preparation for the next life would be seen in this life, that our hope of the next life would be seen in the way that we suffer in this life, that the way that we control our finances would show that we have a hope of heaven, the way that we deal with one another would manifest that there's something more true than what we are experiencing in this life. James is calling all of the people here to be free from division. And he's calling all of us to be single-minded and wholehearted. Brothers and sisters, at the end of this long section on humility, James is calling us to single-mindedness. Believers, especially in the room today, what does our lives reveal about us? Are we double-minded in this life? living for another world, but so frustrated by this world that we can no longer prepare for the next. Living for another world and sinning against one another in this world, ruining and compromising our witness and professing something to be false when we say something else is true. James is calling us to a single-mindedness, and you know, as we prepare for that, what he wants is a wholeheartedness, because waiting for a Lord who is coming, yet seems not to come, requires humility, As we anticipate the Lord's coming, expect the Lord's judgment, consider the Lord's servants, and focus on the Lord's end, and the final word is with the Lord, so you can afford it to humbly wait. Like all of the previous sections in his letter, James concludes this section with an exhortation to patience and endurance in a sinful world. 
The very thing that these believers would need. Because believers then, just like believers today, want to give up. When life is hard and circumstances are adverse, we want to quit and we no longer believe the things that we profess to be true. It is so easy at times to come in here on a Sunday morning and sing these songs and confess these truths together. But as soon as we walk through these doors and leave this building, we forget everything that we have been catechizing ourselves to believe. James is calling these believers in the midst of turmoil and pain who are suffering hardship and social alienation and persecution and difficulty to patience and endurance, to patience and to steadfastness, to a hope of the return of Christ so that they might live in light of that return. Though the rich oppress the congregation, they can be patient and they can wait because the rich oppressors do not have the last word. Not everything is as it seems. Jesus will come and he will make all wrong things right. They need to be like the farmer who is waiting for his crops to rise. And while the farmer waits, what does he do? He waters and he fortifies his field and he weeds his, weeds his garden so that no destroying element will ruin his crop. And that is exactly what we are called to do in this life, to water our faith and to nourish it and to make sure that nothing corrodes it and destroys it in this life. In the same way, we need to live and be prepared without grumbling, but remember, remembering what is coming, just like the prophets who waited for the coming of the Lord. And they remain steadfast under trial, like Job who waited for the coming of the Lord. And what did he learn at the end? That God was merciful and gracious all of the way. It did not look like God was being merciful and gracious all of the way. It did not feel that God was being merciful and gracious all of the way. But what he learned at the end of the book of Job, of the book of Job, is that God had been merciful and gracious, compassionate all of the way. Therefore, we need to be people like this as we wait for the coming of the Lord. As we are called to steadfastness, we are reminded that God is being compassionate and merciful and gracious all of the way. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us, help us to trust that you have been and are being compassionate and merciful all of the way for those who are yours in Christ, that you have intended something better for us than we have intended for ourselves, and that you are using every circumstance of this life to prepare us for life in the world to come. Every hardship is a catechism for the next, every trial is a doctrinal lesson teaching us for a world of eternal glory. Every sad day is preparing us for the wonderful relief of that great day when Jesus comes and wipes away every tear. Every sorrowful moment will give way into eternal doxology where we praise you as we did earlier from whom all blessings flow. Father, we ask now in the midst of this life that you would help us to be patient trusting, not sinning in our speech against one another, not sinning against you, distrusting your providence, not being duplicitous people who say yes and do the opposite or say no and do the opposite, but being single-minded and wholehearted, knowing that what you have before us is better, better than everything we could have ever imagined, 
better than everything we could have ever thought. Better because of what you have done for us in Christ. Father, I pray for these, my friends, that you would help them, help all of us to hold on. Father, I know that there are many days when we feel that we are holding on by a fingernail. And we read a text like this and it seems as if you are so unfeeling and so uncaring that you no longer consider the difficulty and the complexities of our situations. We pray that we would listen to our brother James and that we would remember that this has always been your way with your people. Just like it was with Job, just like it was for the prophets. And on those difficult days, may we remember that a day is coming when you will prove that you were merciful and compassionate all of the way, molding us to be the kind of people that we could not be apart from these providences, preparing us for a world that we cannot even begin to fathom completely in this life as you give way from this world to the next to an eternal weight of glory that is before us in Christ. Father, help us to hold on. And as we are holding on, we pray that you would preserve our witness, that we might be a people who do not destroy the church with acidic speech, but that we would be a people who build up the church And as we are building up the church and building up one another, as we are encouraging, not discouraging, as we are giving praise and not grumbling, that the unbelieving world would hear and look in and see a group of people who are living for another world, another life, a fuller life. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.